have a Bible with you, please do turn to Luke chapter 5. We're looking this morning at the subject of growing as followers. Just as you're turning there, uh, I'd like to ask you a question, which is what's on the next slide here. And it is, how, if you are, um, if you know that you have given your life to Jesus, that you're living your life in Christ, if that describes you, I wonder what the headline word is that you would normally use to describe yourself. Here are a few. You might describe yourself as a Christian, or as a believer, or indeed as a disciple. I just wonder which of those words you would use most often. It's probably in that order, if you're kind of normal. In the In the UK, we tend to talk often about being Christians, sometimes about believers and unbelievers, perhaps a little bit less often about being disciples. But this is the frequency with which these words appear in the New Testament. The word Christian comes three times in the New Testament. The word believer, 26 times. That's nearly 10 times as often. Uh, But the word disciple, 282 times. The word disciple is the most, uh, is the preeminent word in the New Testament for describing what it is to be in Christ. It's not just about belief, it's not just about the label of being a Christian, but it's this thing about being a disciple. So this morning as we look at growing as followers, I want to say that that's what discipleship is all about. The word disciple means a follower. It's not just about a label, it's not just about what we believe, but following implies action. Our vision as a church is to be following Jesus. That's pretty simple. But that is what it's all about. So what we're looking at this morning is right at the heart of what our vision is. And if you want to understand, if you've come recently to the city or just looking in and saying, what's this church about? I want to say this is as good a headline as you're going to get as to what we are about. We believe in discipleship. That is, we believe in following Jesus. That's the bottom line and right at the heart of all that we're about. Now, disciples were quite common in New Testament times. Uh, Disciples in the era in which Jesus lived were a little bit like the grammar school boys. That is to say, just like you pass the 11 plus test uh, to get into a grammar school, um, those And it was boys, those boys who got to be disciple to a rabbi, to a Jewish teacher, were those who'd done well at school. Actually, school for them went up to the age of 13, so around about Y8. Those who'd done really well and who behaved well could perhaps become the disciple of a rabbi in order to enter into a career as a scribe or a teacher or some such thing. But Jesus did things differently. He chose uneducated people and sinners. So let's read in Luke chapter 5, and we're going to read the first 11 verses, which in the uh, NIV translation are under the heading of the calling of the first disciples. And then we're going to drop down to verse 27, which is entitled the calling of Levi. So, one day... As Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down 
and taught the people from the boat. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, uh, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything and followed him. In verse 27, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large group of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So I just have a few simple points to make uh, on the basis of these verses. And where we're heading to towards the end is, I have a prayer uh, prepared, which I think will enable us to respond to some of the challenge that's in this chapter to us. And uh, we will have an opportunity to pray that together before the end. The first thing just to say is that for Jesus, and in the question of becoming his disciple, this chapter and the rest of the New Testament makes it clear to us that all are welcome. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 8, Simon Peter identifies himself as a sinful man, not the kind of person that would be picked up and taken on as the disciple of a rabbi. Levi doesn't say quite the same thing about himself, but everybody else does. Everybody else looks at him and says, well, whatever you think of yourself, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be in there. In fact, Jesus was so inclusive of people, so welcoming of people that didn't otherwise make the grade, that people looked on and questioned whether Jesus was a proper rabbi at all. One of the best British disciples of Christ of the 20th century was a man called Smith Wigglesworth. You may have heard of him. Uh, He was a man who didn't learn to read or write as a child. Actually, at the age of six, he got his first job, pulling turnips and washing them. A year later, he got a new job, 
working at a woolen mill at the age of seven, uh, 72 hours a week. In his teens, he finally got to become a plumber's apprentice, but there wasn't much time for learning. And not only that, but he could barely speak to people. In the church that he was a part of, they had what we might think of nowadays as house groups. And when he went there, he couldn't find the words to say what was on his mind and what was going on in his life. Even in that trusting setting, he couldn't speak. He could barely speak. Not only that, when he did speak, he was given to outbursts of anger and he had no tact whatsoever. But God took hold of him. And Smith Wigglesworth decided that he would follow Jesus wholeheartedly. As he did so, and as people prayed for him, he began to be able to speak. First of all, to his friends and within a church setting. And later, he began, when he'd been baptised in the Holy Spirit, he began to speak to crowds of people and saw many, many, many people understand for the first time the significance of what Jesus had done at the cross. The stories that go around Smith Wigglesworth's life are too many to recount. More people healed than you could shake a stick at. More people converted to Christ than have been counted. Um, They did count one thing in his life, which was the number of people raised from the dead in his ministry, which they counted at 14. Um, And he didn't do it with tact. There is this wonderful story of him taking hold of a corpse and smacking it up against a wall and praying that the person would come back to life and letting go. Um, And it worked. The issue, you see, is not about how great we are. Discipleship, this task of following Christ, is so not about us. It's so not about us. It's not uh, how well I can follow Jesus is not at all to do with the qualifications that I come in with. It's all about what God does in me. And that's why all are welcome. Something follows on from that. Jesus says in the next chapter, Luke 6 and verse 40, he says that a disciple becomes like their master. A disciple becomes like their teacher. So when Jesus says in chapter 5 to Simon and his partners, from now on you will catch men, what he's saying to them is you're going to start to do what I'm doing right now with you. He is in the process of reeling them in. He's just caught them. And he says, you're going to start doing exactly what I'm doing. Because what a disciple does is just like an apprentice. You learn to be like your teacher. That's what this picture's about. If this little boy learning to make shoes came in one morning and said, you know what, I'm just not very good at hitting nails. I just don't think I can do it. I just don't think it's me. Uh, I'm sure that his wise teacher would have worked with him on it. said, you, my son, are going to become a cobbler. Come what may, uh, we're going to work on it together. Jesus does the same for all of us. He took hold of these uneducated men. 
who weren't even able to find the fish in the sea when they were fishermen, who took, it took a rabbi who had a, no education as a fisherman but as a carpenter to find the fish. They didn't even seem to be that brilliant as fishermen. And he says, I'm going to make you something in a whole walk of life that is different to what you might expect. Jesus does the same thing for everyone who chooses to follow him. He lines up experiences for us that will cause us to grow. He speaks words to us that will fill us and change us and transform us so that bit by bit by bit we become more like him because he's taken us on as his apprentices. And it's, not, it's, it's so not about us. It's all about what he is, or who he is, what he knows how to do, and his determination to get it into us so that we become like him. Paul, in writing a letter to the Corinthian church, his second letter, chapter 3, verse 18, said, We are being transformed into Christ's likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are being transformed. I don't know whether you feel like there's a lot of transformation going on in your life at the moment. Um, If you're suffering quite a bit, there probably is. There's one of these things that um, we find that God changes us more in our times of trial than at any other time. And uh, If you're just kind of flying along, doing what you know how to do and finding success, well, praise God for the achievement, but I suspect you're not changing a lot. What you're doing is you're bringing out of your sort of spiritual storehouse, as it were, old treasures. Well, that's a good thing. But I want to encourage anyone who's really, really up against it at the moment, you are right in the midst of transformation. God is with you. And this scripture is true for you, that you are being transformed into Christ's likeness. Don't allow the pressures and the opposition to undermine your confidence in God's purposes for your life. One of the things that we do that stands against this truth is when we say of ourselves, oh, that's just not me. I'm just, you know, I'm just not very much of a, you know, fill in the blanks. I'm not much of a, you know, using some Christian language here, I'm not much of a pastor. It means, you know, I'm not very loving. And it's just kind of like that. Uh, I'm not much of a tactful person. You know, it's just a bit of one of those things that I shout a lot. (laughs) And so it goes on. And we put in, we have in our thinking things that constrain our openness to God changing us. You know, In churches like ours, we talk frequently about the church as the body of Christ with different people being like the different parts of the body, which is to say that everybody's different and each part needs to hold on to its difference and we need to honour the difference in each other so that we can all work together. But it's a little bit of a slippery slope from that to say, I know who I am, I've got these spiritual gifts and those other things, that's just not me. You know, Jesus, there's a list in Ephesians 4, isn't there, which lists off something of the diversity of gifts in the body of Christ, where it speaks of apostles, prophets, evangelists, 
pastors and teachers, some of us think of our gifts in that framework. And we say, oh, I'm an evangelist. I'm not much of a teacher or whatever it may be. But the New Testament describes Christ to us as the prototype, the archetype of all of those. He is the great apostle. He is the prophet um, who is greater than Moses, the high point of prophecy in the Old Testament. He is the evangelist par excellence. He is the shepherd. He is the good shepherd, the shepherd on whom all pastoral care is modelled. And if he's not a teacher, then I don't know what he is. And we are being transformed into his likeness. So if there's any area where we've said to ourselves, well, you know, it's just not me. I'm just not very prophetic. Well, huh. uh, God has higher hopes for you. And I want to encourage you to be open to the transformation that he intends for you because that is what discipleship is about. It's so not about us. It's all about him and what he plans and purposes to do with us. Now then, there's a phrase that's repeated twice uh, in Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 11, it says of these fishermen that they left everything. Uh, In verse 28, Levi likewise left everything. These first disciples... When they left everything, that included a couple of things that I'd like just for us to reflect on together. One thing that they left was their work. Another thing that they left was their families. Those are two really massive areas of our lives, and it would do us good to think about them a little bit. Fishing was what they knew to do, even if Jesus proved to be rather better at it. Um, They weren't educated And uh, Jesus wasn't promising to give them another job that would gain an income. He didn't say that. He said he'd give them some new skills, but didn't promise a wage. So they left their job, their livelihood, for him. Now, not every disciple of Christ in the Bible left their job. We could think of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, He came out in the night to find Jesus. He learnt about being born again. He became a follower, a disciple of Christ, uh, but he stayed in his job. That's perfectly fine. But when the time came, he didn't allow his colleagues' expectations to dictate his behaviour. In John chapter 7, when they're working out what to do with this Christ... He stood up for Jesus at work, and he faced down insults. Later, when things had become as politically charged in his workplace as you could imagine, because his colleagues have just arranged the execution of Jesus, it's pretty high-octane stuff, in that moment, he went and helped to bury the body of Jesus. He was, he was willing to stand up for Jesus in his workplace. So this issue of leaving your work, it's not about all of us having to have a career change in response to the call of Christ. But it is about an order of priorities. And if our job 
if our career, if our work starts to pull us away from what Christ is calling us to do, Jesus has a certain expectation about which comes first. I had a conversation earlier in the summer with someone who had just uh, finished his uh, university degree here in Oxford. And uh, he, some of you will know who I'm talking about as I tell this story, but he was considering applying for a job with an arms manufacturer because they had a good graduate scheme. And uh, a number of his Christian friends in the church and outside, so I'm sorry if this was some of you, um, said to him, you shouldn't do that. You know, arms trade is bad because like, war is bad, etc. You know, so you shouldn't be doing that. And he came and asked me for my advice. And this is what I found myself saying to him. I said, you know what? You could go and work for that arms manufacturer for the whole of your working life and never be asked to do anything that is against your conscience. You could find that you go and work for them and they put you on some scheme that's looking at sort of armor that is going to protect people or schemes to... uh, clear minefields or something, and you might work for them all your life and never have any crisis of conscience. But they might ask you to start selling arms to people who are brutally repressing their people. So the issue that you need to settle right up front is when, maybe it's an if, but maybe in the arms trade it's a when, when that moment comes, what will you do? Are you resolved ahead of time that where there is a clash, that your following Christ will take precedence? Actually, that is not an issue that only arises for people working in the arms trade. For people who are working in sales in a company that expects them to lie about the product, you may face a similar crisis of conscience. I don't know. There's all kinds of different ways that we face challenges. And It's not the case that our first response to a moral challenge should be to leave our place of work. There may be other options. But there's a question of priority. And if our work is preventing us from following Jesus, then we need to stop it. Is that clear? I think that's what Jesus is teaching us. Actually, it's pretty clear from the pages of Scripture. But to help make it Let's tease it out a bit more as regards family. Because for these first disciples, as they were called, they were called to travel with Jesus in an era where there was no FaceTime on iPhones or even email. Uh, Actually, no snail mail either that really worked. And so for them, traveling was going to come at the expense of their family life and relationships. So who here travels with work at all? Some of you do. I know you do. Quite a few. You know then that when you travel, it is at the expense of your relationships with people. I sometimes travel with church stuff, and I know that that's the case. Jesus is really, really clear that this order of priorities, of following him, being a higher priority than our family life, is not just about these first disciples, but it comes for everyone who responds to the call to follow. Later on in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is recorded as saying, anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even one's own self, can't be my disciple. 
I'll read that again. Jesus says, anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of family can't be my disciple. Now, this is an interesting one because we know that God loves family and parents are called to bring up their children well. We've been praying for that this morning. And actually, in 1 Timothy, uh, the the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, uh, it says that if anyone doesn't look after their family, when their family are in need, then uh, you've disowned the faith. So this is not a blanket sort of dissing of family life in any way. It's all about an order of priority. Actually, if you've just looked up Luke 14 and verse 26, in most translations, what it actually says is, anyone who does not hate their family cannot be my disciple. That is actually what the Greek says, literally. The Greek there, Greek verb there, misio, is the beginning of the word that we have as misogynist. It's a hating word. Anyone who doesn't hate their family. Um, and in order to understand that, we need to remember that these people lived in a culture very, very, very different to ours. And the way in which they used words was sometimes uh, covering experiences that we don't have. One of the things that was different about their culture was that polygamy was fine. And uh, if a man wanted to have more than one wife, he could. And uh, in Hebrew, they used this word, the, the Hebrew equivalent of this Greek word, they used it to describe the feeling that a man had for the wives who were not his favorite. So when Jacob married Rachel and Leah, it says in Genesis 21, I think it is, that he loved Rachel, his favorite, and Leah The word is hated, but it's describing that feeling you have for your not-favorite wife, the one who is not most beloved. (laughs) Is this making sense? In fact, in in the ancient world, these feelings were so well understood that actually the Hebrew uh, Bible, the, the law of Moses, has regulations to cover what you do when you feel that way, to make sure that family members don't suffer because of this feeling that husbands have. It says that you can't mistreat the children of those wives that you've decided you don't favour as much. It's a feeling that they had frequently and grappled with and had to respond to, and for which there had to be legislation, but which we uh, don't experience today. Because actually, the truth... The the whole, um, I may be on a slight tangent here, but I've delved in, so I better finish it off. (laughs) The reason that we stand against polygamy is precisely because it is impossible to love a whole number of wives equally. There is always this favoritism. Whatever people say about it, that's the nature of humanity, and it is not God's best for anyone to be a less favored spouse. So... Uh, Christianity is very clear on the ethics of these matters. But Jesus picks up that language, this language which people knew about was part of their everyday life. So the feeling that men have for their less favoured wives, that is the feeling that we ought to have for these other things that are valuable in our lives, but they're not Christ. They're not the one whom we're following. 
Are you with me? Yeah. And I kind of, I thought I ought to jump in and it's a little bit academic and sort of maybe getting into the language of it and so on, but it's not a bad thing to grapple with the text of scripture, is it? I hope that's okay. The point that Jesus is making when, going back to this translation that I read earlier, which is from the message, anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even one's own self, cannot be my disciple. His point is that we must love him more than we love everything else in our lives. So it's the same thing to do with work and the same thing to do with family, that if and when there is a conflict between these things, then actually that which we love more will become clear and it should be, as followers of Christ, that it's Christ who comes first. Now, I just want to be clear, in case there's any misunderstanding here, as a father and as a husband, I do make my own family a high priority. I know sometimes pastors have a reputation for just running around doing ministry and neglecting their own family. Um, I think that's wrong. Um, I'm I'm always looking for ways to give my time so that Bev can pursue her own work. I make sure that I'm home around tea time uh, to be with my family. I cook meals when I can. Our family days, our days off involve doing what the girls want. (laughs) I mean, all of that, you know. Um, But I'm equally clear that I cannot allow my family to get in the way of following Jesus. When I know that God has uh, prompted me to fast and pray, as he sometimes does, I have to say my family, by and large, hate it. Um, They hate it for several reasons. One is I do have a tendency to be a bit more grumpy. And they see that more clearly. I think I'm fine, and they tell me I'm grumpy. Um, But also, they just like sitting, they just all like sitting down as a family together at mealtime and miss me. Um, If I sometimes travel with things that I know that God's spoken to me to do and to go and to try to bless Christians uh, in other places, um, they miss me, and they're happy to say so. Um, But it gives them actually far more security to know that they have a father, Bev has a husband, who is trying to follow Jesus and do what's right rather than do what they want. And what they want may be right, but um, we all pray that prayer sometimes as Jesus did, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. And I want to bring up children... This kind of touches on the whole thing about dedications earlier um, and how we think about that. I mean, there were promises made. I've made them up concerning my own girls to bring children up to know and to love the Lord. Um, My children won't know, my daughters won't know what it is to be wholeheartedly devoted to Christ unless I sometimes put him ahead of them. Otherwise, what I'll teach them is that the world revolves around them and Christ isn't that worthy. Um, These are strong words, aren't they? Um, It's always been my ambition to follow the... There's a Caffrey's advert, it's a a beer, um, years ago, which talked about strong words softly spoken. I always try to make that my aim when I'm speaking, to say things that are clear and hope that you won't throw anything at me. Um, But I long for my children to grow up with an example of wholehearted devotion to Jesus that they can follow. Um, I don't want to give them an example of being a half-hearted follower of Christ. 
I don't want there to be an inheritance down the generations of this is how you half-heartedly serve as a disciple. In 1850, at the age of 18, a man called Hudson Taylor fell in love. He fell in love with his sister's friend. That's a story that goes through the ages, isn't it? She was a music teacher. He knew that God had spoken to him about going to China. He was cut up, not only over the need for salvation for the people of that land, uh, but also just the, the deprivation that people there suffered at that time, the way in which the opium trade was destroying the country. The girl with whom he fell in love said to him, must you go to China? And it became clear that she was not minded to go there with him. For two years, and anyone who's been in love in their late teens know that two years in love is a long time when there are question marks hanging over the relationship. Two years, he hoped and waited. He longed for her presence. He longed for her companionship. Finally, getting towards his 21st birthday, he finally determined that he had to obey the call to go. And that determination drew from her final clarity that she wasn't going to go with him. And so he was faced with a choice of going without his love or staying with her. He wrote down some of his feelings around the time. He said he was numb with sorrow. He grieved for a broken heart. And then the thoughts came to him, really, why should I go to China? Is it all worthwhile? Why toil and suffer all my life? Why not give it up now whilst I can still win her? Why don't I earn a proper living like everybody else? and have the one whom I love. He wrote to his sister, For some days I was wretched as heart could wish. It seemed as if I had no power in prayer nor relish for it. But instead of throwing my care on Christ, I kept it all to myself until I could endure it no longer. Then the next day, Sunday the 15th of December, 1851, he went to church out of a sense of duty rather than desire, it must be said, but met afresh with God. And after that, he was able to write this. I am happy, not without trial, anxiety, or care, but by the grace of God, I no longer bear it all myself. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. We will praise him for all that is past, and trust him for all that is to come. He went to China and had an impact on that nation uh, of historic proportions. He is understood to have dealt a blow to the opium trade that transformed the future of that nation, not least alongside that, from his own ministry and those that he took with him, there's an estimated 18,000 Chinese people found Christ for themselves. Of course, that number now in China is nearer 100 million. But the seeds were sown huh, through Hudson Taylor, but contested in a moment of decision over priorities. 
The call to grow as followers of Christ comes down to moments and to issues like these. I wonder what decisions you're facing. God is looking for people who will follow him wholeheartedly. When I was a little boy, I encountered a prayer. I grew up as a Methodist, and I encountered a prayer. It would be great if we could have it up. A prayer, this is slightly altered from the one that I read as a child, but a prayer that Methodists, in the UK at least, pray every year. I'm going to read it through to you and give you a moment to reflect and then invite you to pray it along with me. It's a prayer, we could call it a disciple's prayer, a prayer about following Christ. Lord Jesus, I choose to follow you and do your bidding. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I am yours and you are mine. You know, that's a substantial prayer. And uh, I want to invite you to consider it and invite you to pray it with me and I'll give you a couple of moments to reflect before we do so. Christ has many things for us to do. Some are easy, others are difficult. Some bring honour, others bring reproach. Some suit our natural tendencies and interests, others are contrary to both. In some, we may please Christ and please ourselves, In others, we cannot please Christ except by denying ourselves. Yet the power to do all these things is given to us in Christ, who strengthens us. So I invite you, if you will, and there's no obligation or pressure, but to pray these words aloud with me. Lord Jesus, I choose to follow you and do your bidding. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. 
Put me to doing. Put me suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I am yours and you are mine. Amen. If you've prayed that, you've done something significant. It's a recommitment to be a follower of Christ. I could have taken time this morning to speak of the very, very many blessings that flow out of following Christ. Uh, That's a message for another morning. I wanted us to get to this point confident in the knowledge that in making that commitment, you will experience those blessings without me listing them off. In the coming weeks, we'll look a little bit more at different aspects of discipleship. Hopefully, we've got at some of the heart issues this morning. And in the coming weeks, we'll be able to talk a little bit more practically about what discipleship means for us. Um, Yeah. Father God, would you help us as we continue in coming weeks to look at what it means to follow you? Lord, we remember that it's so not about us. It's all about you. We pray that we would be caught up again in love and wonder as we see more clearly who you are and all of your goodness displayed towards us. We thank you that on choosing to follow you, there is such a wonderful life in all its fullness to be lived now and which continues into eternity. Lord, your goodness is marvellous and we celebrate it together. We honour you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.